Good morning. If you're here for the first time today, or if you missed the last two messages, this is the third message on the heart of God. And today we're going to look at it through the lens of a fairly difficult story. Uh, It's in the book of Hosea, and it's a book that illustrates the love of God toward an adulterous people like us. But before we we begin, I'm going to read a few passages in Genesis, Exodus, and Deuteronomy. And you don't have to turn to these because I'm going to read through them fairly quickly. The first is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In this passage, he promised Abraham a land, blessing, a people, protection. And Jesus is found in that last verse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. And we see that uh, Christ was part of the genealogy of Abraham in Matthew chapter 1. Genesis chapter 17 When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked to him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come of you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, and this is uh, when Moses was talking to God in the burning bush. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Exodus chapter 20, this is the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them 
nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting verse 23. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourself a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. And you will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hand, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I have commanded you today. Last, when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who led you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end, then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish as the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish, because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. And one more passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 30, starting in verse 15. See, I have set before you, this is Moses talking, uh, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your hearts turn away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, and that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, 
and that you may dwell in the lands which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. This speaks to the covenant relationship and the promise that God established with his people Israel. And also, uh, interwoven into that is the fact that God despises, he hates idolatry. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to open your word and to study it. Lord, help us as we we seek to learn and understand your heart. We thank you for what is in your heart and all that you have given us and blessed us with, things that we don't deserve at all, Lord, and you give us freely. Blessings, the gift of your Son, your love, your continued love, and the fact that we are elevated into your family as believers. We thank you so much for all of those things, Lord. Open our hearts this morning to hear what you would have us to hear. We pray all these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. That's the beginning of a very well-known verse, which I would say probably encapsulates the gospel message. For God so loved the world. And love, we would consider a matter of the heart. Oftentimes, I think if you ask somebody, love would be considered a matter of the heart. They would agree with you. And the heart, the heart, or the word heart even, but the physical heart uh, is important just by the language we use. When we think of us saying the heart of worship, I'm going back to the heart of worship, or looking into the heart of the matter, we desire to know the heart of the matter. Or Mary uh, treasured these things in her heart, the words of the Lord. And we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart. It's important just by the very language we use. But if I was to seek to, de- to define or describe uh, the heart, it would probably depend on who I talk to, first of all. So if I asked a doctor to define or at least describe the heart, he would probably describe the physical heart. Uh, the fact that it is a muscle that, that pumps. And it's important, it's crucial to the human body. Uh, if you had to pick one of the single most important organs in the entire body, I would say the heart is probably one of them. It probably is the most important uh, because it is the organ by which uh, heart, life-giving, sorry, life-giving blood, uh, and Leviticus 17.11 would say that the life is in the blood, is distributed throughout the body, circulated throughout the body. It's not only central to the human body from a physical standpoint, uh, but it is the most important. If you separate any part of the human body from the blood, it will die. It could be skin off off your, your hand, the back of your hand. That skin will die if separated from the blood. If you asked a psychologist, he would probably talk about uh, the relationship between mental health and, and, and the heart as an emotional state. He may talk about the physical heart as well, but the emotional heart and how that ties to mental health and how it's of crucial importance. If you have someone with a broken heart, for whatever reason, their mental health will suffer. Uh, if you talk to a philosopher, they will probably talk about it from a purely emotional standpoint, uh, that it is of utmost importance. Uh, when when talking about it from a philosophical standpoint. If you ask the coach, he'd probably point to a person on his team, and it might not be his best player. It could be the water boy. and say, this this is the heart, and this person is the probably the single most important member of our team. He may not be the best. He may not contribute the most points, but without him here, 
our team spirit would die. And if you asked someone who is in love, they would say the heart is what they desire to give to the person, to the object of their affection. I want to give every part of myself to the person that I love. And I want to know them. I want to know their heart. I want to know every part of them. So it's the thing that they desire to know the most about the person that they love. It could be described as man's entire mental and moral activity, both rational and emotional. Figuratively, it is the hidden spring of the personal life. It is the central or inmost part of something, the center of a person's thoughts and emotions, the vital part or essence of someone or something. So why learn about the heart of God? Why do I want to learn about the heart of God? Why do I want to know the heart of God? If you go back to the the thought of someone who is in love, it's the thing that they desire to give, and it's the thing they desire to know the most in the person that they love. I love the Lord. And I want to know His heart, which would be considered the vital part or essence of Him. So we can say, I can say, like like, uh, Paul did in Philippians chapter 2.10, that I may know him. We seek to know God's heart because we want to know him better. We want to know him more. We want to know him deeper. So today we're going to look at a story through a book of the Bible which presents an easy to understand but not easy to read picture of some aspects of God's heart. Turn, if you will, to the book of Hosea. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. I sing that song all the time when I'm looking for books of the Bible in the Old Testament. I don't know about you. And it's, it's great to come to a King's Club and hear the children learning the very same song that I learned when I was a kid and as a nearly 40-year-old man still used to find books in the, uh, the, the Old Testament minor prophets. <clears throat> so the name Hosea I found interesting. The very man that God chose to be a prophet to his people, Israel, His name means salvation. As God's messenger, Hosea offers the possibility of salvation. If only the nation will turn from idolatry back to God. We're going to read starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife. In the book of Hosea, God's relationship with his people, Israel, is illustrated in the covenant relationship of marriage. That's the picture that he chose to illustrate his covenant relationship with his people, Israel, with or by And if you go to the New Testament, God's relationship with his church, with the individual members of his church, with us, is illustrated in the covenant relationship of marriage. Christ is the bride, bridegroom. The church is the bride that he loves. And really, first and foremost, it it should, in our minds, elevate the importance of marriage. Marriage is a picture of of the relationship between Christ and His church, between God and His people, Israel. 
And if we don't think that marriage is important, it is because of that. If nothing else, because of that. It's also important because we made a covenant. We've established a covenant with our spouse. And, and it goes further. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, we're called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I fail at that way more than I'd like to admit. In fact, I'll never love my wife the way that Christ loved the church. Not truly. Not with the same depth. But I should seek every day to love my wife with the sacrificial love that Christ showed the church. It's important. But God used marriage in the book of Hosea to illustrate the covenant relationship that he had with his people, Israel. And God, God himself, is love. And in his heart is love. Love for his church. Love for his people, Israel, that is found in Hosea. And we know from the passages we read before that he chose them. He chose the people of Israel, not necessarily for anything, any, by any merit of their own. He chose them. And we also know that as the church, as individuals, members of the church, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He set his people Israel apart. He said, I am your God and you are my people. He set them apart from the rest of the world. And he also set us apart, the church, by adopting us into his family. We are set apart. And he loved the people Israel, his people. And he loves them still. And we know that the Lord Jesus loves the church because he gave himself for the church. And to finish Verse 2, Hosea was commanded by the Lord to go take a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam. The Lord commanded him to take a woman as his wife. And he did. He did what the Lord told him to do. And he entered into a relationship with someone that he most likely knew was at some point in their relationship going to commit adultery. So he entered into a covenant relationship of marriage with someone that he knew would break that covenant. And, and before we go into how that correlates with the Lord, it, it is worth noting that because of that, there is, there is a real tenderness in the book of Hosea that's not necessarily found in his contemporary. You look at Amos. Amos is a contemporary of Hosea. And his message is not necessarily quite as tender. There is a true, I believe, desire for restoration found in the book of Hosea. And you, you see the man coming out of, of the story. And, and, and it's someone that we can sympathize with to think about... Um, the fact that this person, commanded by God, married a woman, loved her. And we don't, there's not a lot of narrative in the book of Hosea. So we know what we know. But we can make assumptions that he did love his wife, Gomer. And God entered into a covenant relationship with his people, knowing 
they would commit idolatry, knowing that was going to happen. And he still entered into that covenant relationship with them. And I don't want to necessarily confuse the two because idolatry and adultery are not the same thing. But in the book of Hosea, God is using the picture of adultery, which is something we can understand on the human level, to illustrate uh, idolatry, which is a pursuit of or a love for something or someone that is above God. And if we have any doubts that he is talking about idolatry, we can turn to Hosea chapter 4, start in verse 11. Harlotry wine and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff, or the divining rods, informs them, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops and burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. He's talking about idolatry, turning away from God. And again, we talk about Hosea and his, his love for his wife, Gomer. We see the love of God for his people Israel in Hosea. And intermingled with that love is what happens when love is, is cast aside or it's rejected. And that's grief. If you turn to, to chapter 11, and you read verse, starting in verse 1, and there's elements here too of, of, of relationship with Israel as, as a parent and a child. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son, as they called them, so they went from them and they sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim, Ephraim is Israel, to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. How can I give you up? This is verse 8, Ephraim. How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with terror. He loves his people Israel. And when they rejected him, when they turned away from him, which is what idolatry is, and they turned towards these things that cannot see or hear or smell or taste, these are things that are made from things that God himself has made. You think about what a graven image really is. If people fell down and worshipped Baals on the mountaintops, these were things that were made from the creation of the Lord and then worshipped as if they were the Lord. And so you see grief, real grief, when the love that God extends to his people is rejected. And if you think about that in context of of Hosea, because at some point it doesn't explicitly say it happens, but we know it happens because of of chapter 3, there's the, 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 the effect or the end of that. But when his wife committed adultery, there would have been real grief there, real pain, real suffering. 
And so, as the minister of God, he was experiencing on a small level what God was trying to teach his people on a big level. Your wife, who I told you to marry, has now committed adultery with you. I am experiencing the same thing with my people Israel. And I am charging you to go and deliver this message to them, having experienced some of the same feelings, difficulties that I am experiencing, again, on a small level. But then he is speaking uh, to the people of Israel. And in God's heart, there is also jealousy. And I don't necessarily, jealousy is often a a negative, has negative connotations. Um, But the scriptures themselves, God says he is a jealous God. And what what I think that means is he desires, he desires your heart. And he, he wants your heart to be his and his alone. So in his heart is a desire for you and all of you, a desire for me and all of me, a desire for his people, Israel, and all of them. Not some of them, not part of them, not sharing it with other things, but all of them. And in God's heart, there is anger. A reaction to a situation like this, if we try to put ourselves in Hosea's shoes, if we can for a minute, and it's probably easier for those that are married to do so, but if you think about Adultery. If you think about a spouse being unfaithful, that would make you angry. It would make you sad. And it would make you angry. And I think if it was me, I probably would, I may do things in in my anger that are not good. That's not what the Lord does here. But he is clearly angry with his people Israel. Just look at the names of the children of Hosea that the Lord commanded him. Verse 4, And the Lord said to him, this is the, the, the first child that they had as a son, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel and the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. That's what you're going to name your firstborn son. I'm going to bring an end to Israel. And then they had a daughter. And that daughter, the Lord said, name her Lo-Ruhamah, which literally means no mercy. For I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. And then they had a third child, a boy. The Lord said, call his name Lo-Ami, not my people. For you are not my people, and I will not be your God. There was anger at the idolatry of the people of Israel displayed here. And there are other, there are plenty of passages in Hosea. Uh, you can, I'm not going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, or really you just read the entire book and you'll see the, the anger of the Lord against idolatry, which is what his people did. And I, I at times, have struggled myself with how to uh, marry is not the right word. Reconcile is probably the right word. Uh, how to reconcile in my mind that sometimes, and I know this is a question that often comes from people who don't believe, but how, you know, how could the Lord discipline? How could bad things happen to good people? And in this particular instance, it's because of sin that 
that there was. But if you, if you really look at the discipline of the Lord in terms of a parent, a parent disciplining their child, anger is a part of that. And anger, as a parent, if you have children, you could probably relate to this, but you can experience real anger at anyone or anything which would harm your child. Sometimes you react in anger because you're scared. Sometimes you react in anger because you realize how badly your child could have been hurt. And, and we as parents, we're, we're not perfect parents. And so oftentimes our anger is directed at our child, not necessarily the situation. But if we look at the discipline of the Lord, and that's what, that's what was promised, that's what we saw in Deuteronomy, there's discipline, there's a, there's a cause and effect to your sin, to your idolatry, to turning away from me. But it was not because I want to destroy you utterly. That's not the way the discipline of the Lord works. I'm going to discipline you to save you from something even worse. If you think about that in the, in, in the, the picture of a, a parent-child relationship. And we see that explicitly stated in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, in verse 5, My son, do not despise the chastenings of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you were without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you were illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have the human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in sub subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. My dad tells a story of when he was a young child. One of the few times he remembers being spanked because, according to my father, he was a very good child. Or his parents didn't necessarily believe in corporal punishment at, 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 at a large scale. I was spanked much more than that. You can infer from that what you will. Uh, but my father ran out of his front door, down the steps, across the sidewalk. He was going to see a friend, and he could not wait to get there, and he ran right across the street without looking for cars. And he didn't know that his dad was sitting on the front porch. But he got across the street and he heard his full name. And you know, I think everybody knows, if you hear your full name, middle name included, you're in trouble. So he came back and his father took him into the house and he spanked him. And he explained to him, after he disciplined, that you will never cross the street again without looking both ways for cars. Now my father was a fairly young man the time probably didn't completely understand why his father had hurt him and it may not have been the most pleasant thing in the world if you ask him i'm sure it wasn't i know my experiences were not but they're designed to teach a lesson reinforce a lesson that says you know what this is going to be painful now but it's much better than what could happen if you don't learn this lesson you could be hit by a car you could die so that's, I think that's the way that God's anger is revealed. Um, it's, it's revealed at idolatry and sin and oftentimes results in discipline. And again, the Lord does not do anything wrong in his anger. His anger is righteous and his discipline is good and necessary.
And we see in the New Testament, we see the anger even of Jesus Christ against sin and idolatry. My dad pointed this out the other day when I was talking to him. that um, Jesus, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, um, perhaps one of the most memorized verses by Sunday school children everywhere because it is the shortest, in John chapter 11, verse 35, we know that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But right before that, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. That's my understanding that that implies anger. The Lord Jesus was angry and sad. He wept, but he was angry that as the God of the universe, as the Son of God who was walking in his creation, he was seeing the effects of sin. And he was angry because of how that affected the people he loved. In God's heart, there is anger. In God's heart, there is judgment. There is punishment we talked about. In the story of Hosea, correlates, this portion correlates to the next part of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. In Hosea chapter 3, again, there's not a lot of narrative about this, but we do know that in between uh, chapter 3, or chapter 1 and chapter 3, Gomer did commit adultery. Starting in verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who took or who looked to other gods and loved the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be towards you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, Hosea could have been like Jonah. When Jonah was told to do something, what did he do? He ran away. He didn't do it. He did something else. And Hosea was commanded by the Lord to reconcile with this woman, Gomer, the woman he loved but then had committed adultery with him. And he could have chosen, it would not have been the right thing to do, but he could have chosen to follow the laws of Moses as it relates to adultery and have her stoned. But he didn't. He did what the Lord said and he bought her which I believe shows mercy because, first of all, he didn't, he didn't have her stoned. He purchased her back. But he could have stopped there. All right, you're free. I'm done. And walked away. But chapter or verse 5 seems to illustrate that there was a reconciliation there and that she was brought back into the marriage relationship, which would illustrate grace. We see mercy that she was not stoned. We see grace that she was reunited with her husband. In the Lord's heart, there is a desire for restoration. 
And we see that illustrated in John 3.16 when it says when he gave, that he gave his only, or his one and only Son. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. This is an expansion of that verse because we know what he sent his Son for as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he did so while we were yet sinners, we learn in Romans 5.8. Think about that. He didn't wait for us to be perfected. He perfected us while we were still sinners. Or allowed us, offered us a way to be perfected. And that, that atoning sacrifice for our sins makes me think of Isaiah chapter 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord laid on Jesus Christ, on him. The iniquity of us all. That is the atoning sacrifice that he took upon himself, our sins, our suffering, our shame, and our sorrow, so that we could be restored to a relationship with the Lord. In his heart, there is a desire for restoration. In the end of of John 3.16, that whoever believes in him should not perish have everlasting life. God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's an amazing thing to think about. Especially in the context of Hosea, when we see his grief, his sorrow, his anger, his jealousy, and he has to deal with a sinful race who exhibits all of those things every day. And he still desires that no one would perish. And if you haven't made that decision or choice today, today is the day of salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And your promised things, everlasting life, we look forward to in the context of marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb where Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride are reunited. And I'm sorry, but I have to read this story. Because oftentimes at a, at a wedding, a bride is the focus, right? So a pompous young man was tired of the way brides got all the attention at weddings. So he decided to write the wedding announcement himself and rush it off to the newspaper. This is what he printed. Mr. Eric Smith son of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Smith, became the bridegroom of Miss Heather Jones today at the First Baptist Church. Mr. Smith was attended by his brother John as best man. He was attractively dressed in a tuxedo the color of midnight with matching bow tie. Cut from high-quality wool, his three-button, non-vented, black pinstripe tuxedo was classic and sophisticated. Its front be-sewn pockets added an elegant flair while the matching pleated pants oozed with panache. The groom's pants were suspended from the waist, falling in a straight line almost to the floor. On his feet was a pair of magnificent matching shoes, revealing just a glimpse of black leather, laced with string in a color that matched the suit. The effect was rather stunning. The best man's attire looked similar to the groom's, and you could sense a hush of admiration come over the crowd as they were awed by the striking display of masculinity. The groom spoke his vows in low but firm tones. As the bride led the groom from the nuptials, it was noted that she wore the traditional white dress and matching veil. (laughs) I read that because at the marriage supper of the Lamb, 
It's not like weddings in this world because we know that's not the way that things most 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 often happen. We we talk about the bride and we look at her in her white dress and how beautiful she is in the groom. He's he's there. He's got to be. But at the marriage supper of the lamb, the focus is going to be on the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And there's a hymn that, that that illustrates that the bride eyes not her garment, but her her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. It's about the bridegroom. Some things to take away from this. We talked about the fact that God hates idolatry. And we see it very accurately illustrated in in the book of Hosea in the form of adultery. And I don't know about you when we talked about this, but I would have a really hard time dealing with adultery and reconciliation on that. So I would encourage in us a self-examination about the things in our lives that may or could become, that may be or could become idols. I don't recall who who it was, but uh, there was a famous minister who said that we are idol factories. We turn them out. And so what things in our lives could be or are elevated in importance in our regard, above the Lord Jesus Christ and God. I just encourage a self-examination in that respect so that we do not do that or we guard against it. And I and, uh, would hope that this message would stir us as we look at how great the love of God really truly is and how much love is in his heart uh, to love him more. There's another hymn that says, More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. I pray that that is all of our prayer and that it would also stir us to be faithful as we consider the grief that the Lord experiences when we sin, when we stray. And we are prone to wander, prone to wander, and Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So hopefully we, we, we would be stirred to be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. And then last but not least, as we consider all of these things, I pray that it would encourage us to be gracious to others as well. As we consider what the Lord has done for us, what He has forgiven us, how He treats us, I hope that I and we can be encouraged to extend some of that grace to others as we interact with them. Let's close this meeting in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You so much for for Your Word. I thank you for all of these things that we studied, especially your great love with which you loved us, Lord. The fact that you loved the world enough to send your son to die as an atoning sacrifice. And this isn't impersonal, this is for me that you did that. We thank you so much. For that sacrifice, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word and study it. And I pray that we would continue to do so as we seek to know you more and more. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.